Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. So nice to be with you today. I hope your weekend was good. And I am looking at Psalm chapter 34, verse 10, that says, The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I love that verse. I've been thinking about that one all weekend. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I'm going to start my Tuesday because this is kind of a fake Monday because it's long holiday weekend and first day back at work and it always feels like Monday, but it is in fact Tuesday, which means uh, Rob Louie is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. Always look forward to our discussions. Rob, welcome. It's great to be back, Bill. Thank you. How was your uh, weekend? How was your holiday? The weekend was went well. Uh, today was the first day of school for oh, wow. uh, my kids, uh, <laughs> virtual virtual school. So okay. we spent a lot of time making sure that we had everything ready, the workstations all set, <laughs> and uh, and and I think you know largely uh, successful. Uh, nobody lost their their connectivity today, and uh, you know as any first day goes, you, you, there's only so much learning that I think goes into it, but. Uh, but yeah, as uh, so many kids are, are figuring out uh, new ways of some, you know, homeschooling, some investing in learning pods, some going back to public school with a virtual setting, uh, you know, definitely a lot of work uh, on the part of teachers and parents to, to make sure they're prepared. Well, I was thinking about back to school and I was thinking that, that if masks work, why the six feet? And if six feet works, why the masks? And if both work, why the lockdown? That's a good question. You know, I uh, I think that uh, in in parts of Virginia and certainly parts of of the United States, uh, schools have returned to in person learning. I think in some metropolitan areas, including those outside of Washington D.C., uh, you probably have superintendents who are a little bit more risk averse and uh, and don't want to uh, you know make those accommodations that that might be necessary. Uh, there was a period of time where our school district was planning to do a hybrid, where they would do two days in the classroom, two days at home and then kind of asynchronous learning uh, on the other day on the fifth day of the week. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll get back to a point where we can send all of the students back and, uh, and with safety measures in place, they'll be okay. But as, if, as we've seen, Bill, with even college campuses, I mean, it's, uh, people are going to get the virus. Uh, we need to be prepared for that. And I think that uh, perhaps with kindergartners and, and you know, younger kids, it's just a little bit more challenging uh, to get them to wear the mask or to, to maintain that social distance. Uh, but let me also say, it's also challenging to get them to figure out how to turn on the sound on their computer <laughs> right. and, and not, to, not to fiddle and, and, and keep their attention for, for as long as we're expecting them to sit in front of a computer screen. So uh, it's definitely, uh, definitely poses a, a great amount of challenge. Rob, uh, pronounce Kevin's last name for me at the Daily Signal. Is it uh, P-H-A-M? Is it? Yes, Kevin Pham. Yeah, Pham. Dr. Kevin Pham. That, yes. Yeah, a brilliant writer. And he's got this great article at the Daily Signal, and I encourage you to go to dailysignal.com on the uh, n- new COVID-19 findings. Uh, the targeted response is more important than ever. I'd love for you to share with our, our, our my listeners what, what Kevin found. 
Well, Bill, as you remember, we started the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission, and one of the key findings coming out of that was that we needed to make decisions in a, in a locally. Uh, locally, we need we didn't need the federal government to be issuing mandates, and and we needed to get the state to even back off and let local communities make these decisions for themselves. So, on the one hand, um, you know, I was just speaking about Virginia. And Virginia actually has a map of all of the counties, and you can you can see, and this happens all over the place. Uh, you know what schools are are open uh, for in person learning, and and what schools are are doing totally virtual. And I think it just goes to the heart of what what Dr. Pham is writing about in this uh, this particular article, because having a targeted response means that you look at the conditions there on the ground and you make some decisions about how you're going to operate. And he walks through uh, some of the scenarios. For instance, uh, he looks at the different types of groups that have uh, tested positive for COVID-19 or in some cases, unfortunately, have, have, have died from it. And we know a few things. For instance, we know that those who have respiratory diseases are, are more susceptible and, and need to take greater precautions uh, than, than other groups, perhaps younger groups that uh, don't fall into that category. And so uh, one of the most interesting stats that, that I thought uh, Kevin brought out in this piece uh, was that for 6% of deaths involving COVID-19, uh, it was the only cause mentioned. And for deaths uh, with conditions or causes in addition to COVID-19, uh, there were about 2.6 additional conditions uh, or causes per death. And so uh, he walks through what that means and uh, from a doctor's perspective, what, what you should do with it. And I think that that's one of the most important takeaways we can all have from this. We, we, the personal responsibility goes a long way in helping us combat COVID-19. Uh, we can't expect the doctors to, to solve all of the problems and the government to have all the answers. I think it's a lot of what we do. You mentioned a couple of things, socially distance, uh, wearing a mask, uh, remind people to wash their hands. Uh, just be cognizant of uh, when they're in the grocery store and, and, you know, things they may or may not be touching. So contact tracing is another thing. Uh, we have an app here uh, that I know people are using as people go to conferences again. Uh, there are special the apps that are being created so that they can report if they're feeling ill and then they who they've come in contact with will be notified. There's all sorts of technolo technology out there, Bill. And uh, it's one of those things that I think as, as we've progressed now six, seven months into this, uh, we're getting better and better at how to deal with it. But we still are tragically losing lives to, mm -hmm. uh, to this virus. It's still serious. Yeah, and Rob, not all states are are agreeing as to how to, <laughs> right. uh, how to open. I mean, New York, or New York is, I think they're, they're trying to get back to normal, but they're having trouble. And California, their restrictions just, they, they're just, they're, they really go way too far, don't they? Yeah, and, and I think what's troubling about California is that they're applying different guidelines for reopening businesses, schools, and uh, and houses of worship. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> Governor Newsom is somebody who I think has, has infuriated a lot of people in California because of the differences. So, for instance, private schools are not allowed to open. And, uh, and so, you know, for a lot of religious-based schools, this is obviously having a huge impact. I mean, we 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 know that the costs associated with uh, with virtual learning are are high. We've just talked about some of them, but there are some other things that that, that come along with it. I mean, for instance, uh, does everybody have the technology, the, a computer, the the internet access they need? Um, and so, for these these private schools that want to put in place safety measures and return, uh, you know, obviously. 
uh, if, if we're going to take the use the mantra of personal responsibility, we'd want the government to get out of the way, maybe provide some some guidance, but not necessarily impose restrictions uh, as California has. Um, and of course, when it comes to churches and other places like that, uh, you know, there have been limitations on how many people are allowed to gather, or or perhaps a percentage of the total capacity of a building. Uh, you know, there are uh, there are things that uh, I think. Uh, frustrate uh, religious leaders when it comes to that because they recognize the importance of gathering and having that community, uh, you know, celebrate whatever denomination you might be. And so California, definitely not the place that I would look to uh, when it comes to uh, to, to solving COVID-19. But uh, but we probably, uh, there, there's any number of issues we could point to California and say, uh, let's go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't every scientist in the world say science is kind of a, um, has... It's always a work in progress. They're always learning something. They're always making discoveries. And when they say, let's follow the science, I, I always think, well, what science are we supposed to follow? Yeah, that's right. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, it's a good point. Um, and I think that sometimes, uh, yes, it's about science and other times it's about common sense. And uh, there are, uh, there are, I think one of the things that is, is frustrating for, for so many who either operate a business or um, are, are a leader of a church or, or operate a private school is uh, the lack of certainty and clarity. And then you, so you have people who say, follow the science, but if the science is constantly changing, uh, that means that there is, is basically uh, a lack of clarity for, for what you do. So, you know, if you're a business operator, if you're operating a restaurant, do you invest in installing uh, some sort of drive through option or carry out service? Or uh, what do you tell uh, the employees, the, the cooks in the kitchen or, or the waitresses and waiters? You know, there's all sorts of implications for, for what it means. And, and that's why I think, Bill, uh, ultimately, when it comes down to it, not only do we need to be uh, making targeted decisions, as Dr. Pham advised, but also we need to be making decisions uh, that, that look at uh, not only the, the the short-term implications, but also what the long-term effects are on people. And I know you and I have talked about this uh, before, but uh, yes, there are there are risks associated with the virus, but there are also also uh, an increasing number of uh, you know mental health issues that mm-hmm. come along with this. When people lose their jobs, they're unable to provide for their families. Uh, they don't have that certainty or clarity about what the future might hold. And so uh, a whole other set of problems arises. So, yes, it is uh, it is definitely a situation that uh, that is is challenging. But there are some hopeful things that uh, that that come out of it, too, and, and where we've overcome some of the challenges, like the shortage of personal protective equipment, for instance. And uh, we figured out ways to, uh, to to overcome those hurdles. Yeah, I want to talk about that after the break. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. We'll take a short break and learn more about masks and the free market when we come back. Back with Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. I remember when they first started talking about we'd all need masks. I always thought, boy, there's there's those medical-grade masks, and then there's the other ones. And how are they ever going to get enough masks for everybody? 
And now there's right. plenty of masks everywhere, isn't there, Rob? Thanks to the free market. Oh, that, that, exactly. Thank you to the free market for, for this. Uh, you can get a mask uh, in any design that you want. Right. Uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, sports teams now have masks with uh, with their logo on it. If you want to get a, 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 you know, a plain mask, just go to, a you know, any retailer, it seems, and, and they're there. Uh, if you want to get disposable masks uh, at the grocery store, I mean, they're there at the checkout. I saw them there this this weekend. So, you know, uh, Bill, it's really quite remarkable because you, you might recall that one of the reasons why it was used as a justification for shutting things down back in March and April was we didn't have enough personal protective equipment uh, for those who needed it. And so we needed time to manufacture. And and certainly that still remains one of the criteria I think that we're looking at. I know that schools, for instance, uh, want to have a certain amount on hand before they feel comfortable reopening. But I think we can feel a whole lot more confident today uh, and and the the great thing about it is it's not just big businesses that are are, are taking uh, taking advantage of this opportunity. What we're seeing is you know people on Etsy and uh, and and other uh, you know small uh, operations, uh, uh, sewing clubs that have come together to donate masks to those in need. So yes, it's a it's a great example of how uh, when there was a need, there were people who stepped up to fill it, and uh, and in many cases they're they're doing so for charitable purposes. Uh, as well. We, we, we shouldn't forget about those who have sacrificed a lot of their own personal time to donate masks to hospitals and other uh, people on the, on the front lines uh, who, who need them. And so we're, we're, we are so thankful for them. And we're thankful that we have an abundant supply and it's not an issue that we're, we're needing to talk about as, as frequently as we once did. So agree. They always say a picture is worth a thousand words. And on DailySignal.com, there's uh, 39 photos which capture America's summer of riots, arson and looting, and that's worth 39,000 words. The pictures are yeah, absolutely it, amazing. It is. I, I encourage your listeners to take a look at these, at these pictures from, from places all over the country, uh, from Seattle to, to St. Paul. Um, you know, it is, uh, it, it is uh, truly striking to see some of the scenes that have, have played out this summer. And, uh, you know, on a related note, um, you know, uh, just seeing the news breaking this afternoon about the, the retirements, the early retirements of uh, some of the police force in Rochester, you know, these, these photos remind me of the tremendous amount of, of pressure that, that our police find themselves in today. And uh, not only to, to combat and confront those who, who are engaging in this, uh, this lawless behavior uh, and causing great damage to to our cities and uh, to, to small businesses uh, and to even other individuals. Uh, we, we've seen, the, the, you know, some taking uh, others' lives even recently, Bill. So it's, it's just truly tragic. And the police and law enforcement need to be on the front lines of this, uh, you know, to keep us uh, uh, safe and try to restore law and order. And yet uh, they find themselves increasingly under, under attack, uh, calls to defund police, and so uh, what do you see happen in places like Rochester? You're losing a tremendous amount of leadership in that police department today as a result. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, where, where those who call for reforms, uh, they, they may be justified that uh, there are steps that we can take. But at the same time, I just think that uh, there are going to be fewer and fewer people who want to go into this line of work. And uh, there are those who are currently in this line of work who, who see images like these 39 pictures and say, why on earth uh, am I going to show up to, mm-hmm. to work today when I have to deal with this? Yeah, so true. I mean, they they wanted to get into police work because they wanted to serve others and care for people and and make a difference. And now it's it's they're vilified. They're everyone is anti-police. Well, a lot of people are anti-police. <laughs> 
And, and Bill, you know, right, right. I know that a lot of people are. And the thing that really strikes me are these, and we have, we have a picture of this, the, um, in the photo essay, you know, people posting, uh, or writing in, in uh, spray paint on, on their houses or businesses, uh, you know, please spare me or the elderly live here, right. uh, to think about the steps that they themselves as citizens are having to take, uh, to keep their house or their business safe because they don't want, uh, it to be destroyed or they don't want the people who, who live there, uh, their lives to be at risk. It's really, it is really just so sad. W. Bradford Wilcox, who is a sociologist, sociology professor at the University of Virginia, said this, um, stable two-parent families in a community are some of the most powerful predictors of the health of the American dream for poor kids that you can find at the thedailysignal.com um, as well. I would love well, to it's comment so- on that. It's so true, and look, as uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to uh, to have grown up in a in a two parent household, and and my wife as well, and um, and you know, one of the, the the greatest things that I think we can do for our children is uh, is to bring that stability that that you find uh, with uh, with marriage. I mean, children who are raised in a home with two married parents are are less likely to find themselves in poverty. They're less likely to experience. Uh, any type of abuse, whether it be physical, mental, or sexual abuse, and uh, they're also likely, more likely to succeed academically and financially later in life. So uh, that just speaks to the importance of having a mother and a father uh, who are exhibiting good behaviors in home. In the home, and the sad thing is, when you look at some of the statistics, Bill, it is quite alarming. Uh, my colleague Virginia Allen uh, did this uh, did the story and pulled out some some of the data. Uh, you look at a period from the early 1960s up until last year, and the percentage of women who were married, uh, bet- women between the ages of 15 and 44, dropped by 30%. And the number that I find even more alarming than that is the number of children who were born out of wedlock was just about 5% in 1960, and it was 40% last year. Think about that, 40% of children born out of wedlock. And I think that that just goes to show some of the, I mean, we can connect the dots here between some of the problems that we're seeing in our country right now uh, with some of these behaviors that happen in the home. And that just speaks to the importance of uh, having a strong family and a strong marriage. Mm -hmm. The mayor of D.C., is it Muriel Bowser? Correct. uh, She got caught in a little bit of a crossfire, didn't she? (laughs) <laughs> yes. So on a couple of issues. Mm-hmm. So um, first, there was a report that came out last week, which suggested that uh, they do things like remove uh, or or put, um, you know, some sort of uh, trigger warning, shall we say, on, on some of our most sacred national monuments, the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, uh, remove the names of Benjamin Franklin from buildings uh, in, in our city. Uh, it was um, it was just shocking, frankly, uh, that the city would put out uh, th- this recommendation. And later, she had to walk that back and remove uh, some of the recommendations when it come came to federal landmarks, because obviously she doesn't have any jurisdiction over those, uh, even though they they are in Washington D.C. But then there was another issue uh, also, which involved more of the criminal justice side of things when it came, uh, you know, to to maintaining uh, some law and order. And uh, in, in the, it, just in this last week, Muriel Bowser attempted 
uh, you know, to, to pass herself off as a law and order mayor uh, <laughs> who was complaining about uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, office when in fact, uh, you know, a lot of the prosecution really comes down to the work that she should be doing. And the Heritage Foundation, of which the Daily Signal is a part, put out an outstanding 14-point plan about what needs to happen when it comes to protecting our communities. And I will tell you, Bill, prosecution is one of the key things. But we've seen people like George Soros and other liberal funders come in and really try to buy these district attorney's offices. And uh, and they are lax on prosecution. They're lax on prosecution on a number of things, uh, including drug offenses. But we're also seeing they're not taking as seriously some of the crimes that are be co- being committed in our cities. So Maria Bowser can't have it both ways when it comes to both the monuments and when it comes to, to, to law enforcement. What we need in Washington, D.C. right now, and as somebody who, who goes downtown and sees what it's like there, is we need somebody who is, uh, is truly uh, committed to uh, the rule of law and gets things back to the way they need to be and not have a city that uh, ha- has boarded up buildings just across the street from the White House. It is it is unlike anything I've ever seen. I just can't believe it. it it's, it's truly uh, sad, Bill, to think that mm-hmm. uh, a once thriving city uh, for so many tourists has been uh, d- destroyed and, and now famous hotels or buildings that you would expect to see are, uh, are boarded up. Um, like it's a third world country. Wow. Rob, just a couple of minutes left. So what is the uh, most current update on the postal bailout? Yes, well... Uh, <laughs> come Labor Day, uh, August, it is September, so August recess is over for the U.S. Congress. And uh, as your listeners might have suspected, not much happened over the course of the month of August. So this is a time when you're going to be hearing a lot more about uh, not only the government funding, because remember, the fiscal year ends on September 30th. So every year at this time, you and I, Bill, have these conversations about whether we're going to have another government shutdown or not. Right. And mixed up in all of that is uh, whether or not we need to bail out the Postal Service or or if the Postal Service needs more funds to continue operations. And, uh, and the short answer is we shouldn't give the, the, a bailout to uh, the Postal Service. We should always treat these things. Talk about like having a targeted approach, right? Uh, throwing more money at the problem uh, without having the necessary reforms in place is not the way to go. And so what we need to do is we need to take a close, hard look at uh, the way the Postal Service is operating. And it's operating at a loss right now. And uh, the Postmaster General, I think, is trying to put in place some some changes to, to, to fix that. And unfortunately, it's just been caught up, as we've talked about before, in all of, uh, in all of the mail-in balloting myths that, uh, that are going around and the fact that uh, people are concerned that uh, it's going to throw off the election when, in fact, uh, some of these changes were planned long before and have no implication when it comes to, uh, to counting ballots. So yeah. uh, my, my advice is if you can and you're healthy and you're able, go out there and vote in person. Uh, don't try to rely on, on any third party to deliver your ballot. It's best to do it uh, in person. Yeah. So um, I just got a text from a listener. Where are those pictures? And I just want to remind everyone to go to dailysignal.com, dailysignal.com, and you can find all the articles uh, that Rob and I talked about today, as well as those 39 photographs, which are amazing. You know, I remember growing up as a kid and looking at, uh, like, downtown Beirut, and you think, oh, this is what Warzone looks like. And then now I look at those pictures, Rob, and it looks like Beirut. And, and Bill, uh, if you're listening, if it's, and if it's, yes, it, it is. And I just tweeted it too. So they can go to at Robert Bluey on Twitter and they can find it right there. The most recent uh, link. So um, yeah, a lot of great content. You know, we, we produce a lot of it every week at the daily signal. So I know sometimes it gets buried on the page, but yeah. it is there. I promise your listeners that. Thanks so much, Rob. Talk to you next week. Have a great rest of the Thank day. Thank you. Yeah. Rob Bluey, of course, has been my guest. Go to 
uh, dailysignal.com. Take a short break. back with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're starting a new series today on leadership, and this applies to all of us. Greg is a um, ministry director. He's a consultant. He's a professor. He's an author. He's written a book called Beef Jerky Leadership, which we're going to be drawing from over the course of the next many weeks. And just to get things started, Greg, I want to uh, first welcome you and then also um, just have you let everyone know that this is for everybody. It absolutely is. I mean, it's an important subject today for a lot of reasons. We're in a midst of arguably, I think, the most important election of our time, yet one refrain is heard repeatedly, and you probably heard it, Bill. Is this the best leadership we have to offer? I don't care which side of the aisle we're right. on, we're going to be raising that kind of a question. So I'm, I'm really excited about introducing uh, this new series with you, Leadership Beef Jerky, Principles and Practices You Can Chew On. <laughs> so much has been written on this subject, yet so little is understood about it as it makes its way uh, to practical application. We certainly um, have plenty of examples of poor or even terrible leadership in politics, business, and even the church, I'm afraid, and few examples of good and great leadership in those sectors. What about just even non-leadership? Yeah. When we talk about bad leadership, what about no leadership? Which no is leadership is a leadership, isn't well, it? It is, yeah. It certainly is. So, you know, in case your audience might be thinking, well, this, this is all going to be about leaders, let me dispel them of the notion that they are not a leader. So on a personal level, many of us don't see ourselves as leaders or reluctant leaders at best. Few of us see ourselves as born leaders. And some of us become students of leadership because we've been kind of thrust into that leadership role, Bill. Mm -hmm. So I'd stress that we are all leaders part of the time. And here's the key point for the audience. Whenever we or you make a decision that affects others or take an action on behalf of another human being, you're leading. So you might not think of yourself as a leader, but you are leading. You might be a follower and a leader at the same time. Uh, you might be a leader most of the time, but you're certainly a leader some of the time. We, be, we, we can deny that we're leaders. We may be reluctant leaders. We may have been forced to lead. Some of us are natural leaders, and some of us have learned to be a leader. But let's get rid of this false notion, Bill, that we're not leaders at all. That's a good place to start. Okay. So let's delve into this area by kind of setting the stage of what we're going to try and do over the next several uh, times together. So given the fact that we all lead in some manner or fashion at various times in our lives, don't you think we should do what's necessary to lead well in these circumstances? Amen. <laughs> so where do we go to learn to lead well? Now, there are so many schools of thoughts and theory when it comes to uh, you know, learning leadership or exercising leadership. So who do we listen to? Good point. How do we learn to lead well, especially from a Christian perspective? Where do we go to become a good leader? I, I suggest we start in God's Word. Let's take a look at a really, I think, an integral passage, Bill, on the whole idea of leadership. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 7 and 8, 
were admonished to remember your leaders who spoke their word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So let's unwrap this a little bit. So as you think of godly leaders, who really comes to mind? So I would encourage your audience and even us here in the studio to think in our circles of relationships, who stands out as a good example of a leader? If you made a list of good to great leaders currently alive today, who'd be on your list? Good question. Who would serve as a positive model of a leader? What would you use as criteria for a good leader? You're asking some heavy questions here. (laughs) But, you know, when we start thinking about it, we're kind of caught at a loss in many respects. Who would we identify like that? I, I can think of three people in my life right now that I could point to quickly. Dr. Jerry Shevlin, who was a senior pastor of a church that I was an executive pastor in San Diego, ultimately became the president of the Baptist General Conference, now Converge Worldwide. I've watched him for years, and his leadership is worth imitating, godly biblical leadership. Dr. Gary Gonzalez, I've been a friend of his for over 40-some years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've watched him. I was his associate in also in San Diego. Dr. Sam Rima, who... I brought in at Bethel Seminary to take over the doctoral program over the course of his life. Excellent, excellent leader. Even um, Erwin McManus, as I watched him over time, a good friend and a person that I trust, um, I would consider him a good leader. But short of that list, Bill, I, I don't know who comes to your mind when you think of a leader like we just described. Well, in my personal life, I've got people I can name. Of course, yeah. Um, but I'd say that list is short. Yeah, yeah, short for most of us. So, in the passage in Hebrews that we just read, or just mentioned, our one characteristic is underscored. That is the outcome of their way of life. So, interestingly enough, it's not so much what they say, but how they live. And you heard me say this on your program several times, Bill. No one cares what you have to say until they observe how you live, and if you live a life of integrity. In authenticity, people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? Because they can't get past a life well lived. They can mm-hmm. certainly dispute your faith proclamation. They can argue with your beliefs, but they can't argue with a life well lived. And not too many people live lives well, do they? No, they don't. I mean, there's lots of sin and mistakes and things that would cause people to go, I think he's a hypocrite. Yeah. Well, no one's perfect. Of course. I mean, we're all going to have our downside or our dark sides on occasion. But when we take a look at somebody's life over time, what does the trend line really look like? So in my estimation, when we're assessing leadership, um, one criteria for assessing good leadership is the examination of the life of the leader. Do they practice what they preach? Are the artifacts of their life in harmony with their words? Does the pattern of their behavior reflect the faith they proclaim? Are their lives worth imitating? You know, that's a daunting list, wouldn't you think, Bill? Mm -hmm. I mean, if somewhere were to look at me that way, how would I come up on the chart? How would you come up on the chart? In Hebrews 13, 8, which is also part of that passage, we're introduced to another criterion. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, at first glance, this verse seems oddly placed given the previous verse. 
What does it have to do with the previous verse which addresses the outcome of a leader's life? First, Jesus Christ is given as an example in this passage as the kind of leader we should all strive to become. What characteristics of a good leader stand out in this verse? I'd suggest that the primary characteristic of good leadership underscored in that passage in Hebrews 13.8 is consistency. Good leaders are consistent and therefore predictable. They demonstrate a steadiness in the exercise of their leadership. Stability, reliability, and constancy mark their leadership behavior. So, in assessing leaders who can serve as models for biblical leadership, we need to consider the following. Are they stable leaders? Are they dependable and reliable? Are they predictable? Are they constant? Now, in my opinion, there is one other indispensable quality of leadership worth modeling. But before we go on with that, does that list make sense to you? It does. And I I would say everyone listening right now can do a little self-diagnostic. Am I stable? Am I dependable and reliable? Exactly. Am I predictable and am I constant? Yeah, exactly. If you're consistent, and if your friends would say, that Greg Borgon, he is one consistent guy. I would say that's good news. Well, that may not be something somebody would clamor to want to be noticed because it's not really uh, flowery or it's not exaggerated. But the fact of the matter is it's more subtle. I mean, I'm looking for a leader, quite frankly, who's consistent, somebody who's the same yesterday as they are today. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about, well, how they're going to come into the area. How How's my leader? What kind of a attitude are they going to have today? Is it going to be off the wall or is she going to be off the wall or are they just how are they going to be? So Jesus says he was the same today, yesterday, and the same tomorrow. So he's the same forever. So in Jesus as a model to imitate, he was consistent. And so those questions are, are you're right, Bill. I mean, they're a great self-diagnostic. I mean, get up in every morning and say, okay, today am I going to be a stable leader? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be dependable and reliable, or, or am I going to be a flake? Or, or am I going to be predictable? But Greg, even if you're not a leader, you can say, "Am I stable? Am I dependable? Reliable? Exactly. Predictable? Constant?" And if those you can answer yes to, then you'll emerge as a leader. Yeah, these characteristics aren't just evidence. Just like you pointed out, Bill, when you're leading, they're who you are in character, Amen. which will inform how you lead. Regardless of, again, of whether you think you're a reluctant leader or that you're not a born leader, you're going to lead on occasion. And God will call you to take a leadership role in some capacity or form. So building that character, that foundation to stand on as when you're called to lead or when you're asked to lead is going to give you the stability you're going to need to lead, to, uh, to lead well. So I would add to that. Uh, one other uh, indispensable quality of a leader worth modeling, I think, Bill. In Second Timothy 2.15, we read, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So what we're talking about today is, is biblically informed leadership. Does the leader, whether you're reluctant or otherwise, rightly handle the word of truth? In other words, have they demonstrated a grasp on the Word of God? Are they able to inform their leadership practice with the Bible? Are they able to explain their leadership behavior from a biblical perspective that really rings true? 
Is the Bible their fundamental authority for life and practice? Or are there going to be competing authorities that are going to cascade into their life and one day they're reflecting a secular philosophy or ideology and the next day they they go ahead and salt and pepper it with some biblical passages and sanctify it? Um, what I'm uh, suggesting here is is that if we're going to assess leadership, we're going to assess, uh, assess our own leadership, it's got to be Bible-centered leadership. That's what we're looking for. I mean, Greg, even if you're at a dinner party in mixed company mm-hmm. and there's people who are not Christians and a Bible question comes up and you rightly handle the word of truth, you are, in fact, in that moment showing, Leading. showing leadership. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. So certainly there are additional verses we could cite uh, to give further criteria. For now, though, let, let's let those critical passages we just addressed suffice for identifying the essential criteria. So, you know, as we... Uh, conclude our time today, there's a couple of other points that I'd really like to make. Um, we got a little ways to go. Yeah, we we're do. Not, we're not done yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're going to take a break. Here pretty... You don't know the scope of those final comments. Oh, yeah. that I have. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know your notes better than me. <laughs> All right. Did you want to take a break now? Or? I think we'll take a break right now. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we're talking about leadership, and that includes all of us, because at one point you will lead, and that's important to know how to be a good leader and how to make good decisions. And a good uh, leader always knows how to rightly handle the word of truth. We'll continue that in just a minute. We'll be right back. We're back with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're talking about leadership, and that's all of us. We all need to know how to be leaders because we'll have that opportunity at some point in our life. So let's pick up where we left off, yeah. uh, Greg. Well, when we think of developing leadership in ourselves in particular, um, the easiest thing to do is to you know buy a book on how to lead well because generally what that dresses is leadership competence. I mean, most of the curricula that I've looked at whether it was an industry when I was a manager for General Electric, I, I was selected as what they call a high pot and sent to uh, Hudsonville or, <laughs> or Crotonville on Hudson on Crotonville um, for training. And the whole uh, training session for the week that we were there, a hundred young managers, was all on leadership procedures, um, tactics, um, exercises. It was all about building competence. So that's important, and it's important to know how to do things, but most development programs consist entirely of that. Business and churches, for that matter, focus on training others in particular skills and competencies because it's, it's a neutral area. How do you uh, do something effectively and efficiently seems to be the most important thing that we pass on to young leaders. We go ahead and train them to lead a project team or a small group, how to plan a project, how to develop a budget, how to study the Bible, how to grow spiritually, how to recruit people, how to evaluate results, how to empower people. Those are all skills and competencies. And some of us are, if if you're a, um, a born leader that comes easier to you than it does to others, some of us have to study how to do it very effectively and practice it over time before we become effective at it. But it's generally 
how-tos. It's all about leadership competence. It's important, but it's not the only thing. The second arena to develop your leadership is what I call leadership character. Uh, it has to do with developing, really, the heart of a leader, Bill, and we talked about this on your program before. Calibration of the heart to the heart of God is um, probably one of the most essential things that we can do in terms of developing leaders. And so the whole idea is is that we want to tune our heart to the heart of God. It's essential to uh, accomplish what God's called us all to do as ministers of reconciliation. I mean, if we are ministers of reconciliation, we will take some leadership roles on occasion. Because for some, again, unfathomable reason, the infinite God has chosen us as his finite creatures to carry out his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. And so character really does matter if we want to become a Bible-centered leader. Because, you see, your, your character really informs, it conditions, and it and energizes your leadership practice. If you take any practice, any procedure, any methodology, any strategy, and you're effective at implementing it in any given context, the results uh, will be fairly predictable. They'll be linear and additive. But when you take that same process, that same methodology, that same tactic, that same strategy, and put it against a backdrop of biblically informed character, all of a sudden the results are no longer linear and additive. They're exponential in the results because your character will always inform the quality of what you do. Your beingness will always impact how you do something. So character development, leadership character is that second arena that's often pushed to the side because it's subjective in nature and it's hard to do Mm -hmm. because every individual is different. Everybody appears along the continuum of spiritual maturation at different places. So it's messy work, but it's absolutely essential. You invest in somebody's character development, and you will impact their their leadership performance. Mm-hmm. And just, Greg, just so we make sure we're not leaving anybody in the weeds, this whole idea of leadership applies to everybody. And Absolutely. if you initiate a conversation with a neighbor about Jesus, you are showing leadership. Absolutely. You are stepping up and showing uh, God's character in your life, and you're sharing your faith, and that's leadership. Anytime you make a decision, as we talked about at the first segment of the show, you make a decision that will impact others, you're leading. Yes. Bottom line. Yes. Anytime you take an action on behalf of others, you're leading. Period. I mean, we don't live in isolation. We're always in in a relational context. And We're not always going to be a follower in that context. We may be a follower who leads on occasion. We may be a leader who follows on occasion. But we're going to be involved in those two activities, whether we realize it or not. And so that the the whole idea of, of character development, we want our character to reflect the character of Jesus Christ when and wherever we lead, Mm -hmm. forever, how long we're going to lead. In your home, mothers and dads, you're leading. You're leading your children. You're training them in the way of the Lord. You're trying to help them navigate an ever-darkening world. The advice that you give them is not coming from a neutral party 
or in neutral positions. It's coming from a position of leadership in your home, spiritual leadership in your home. So it isn't just in the marketplace you're leading. It's in your home you're leading. Mm -hmm. I mean, being just an example to your children is leading. Mm -hmm. So those two factors, those two arenas, when we talk about leadership development, we're talking about not just leadership competence, but leadership character. The third arena that I would suggest we consider in developing more effective leadership practices and principles is what I call leadership congruence. Notice the three C's. You would expect a seminary guide. Exactly. uh, You don't disappoint. (laughs) Leadership competence, leadership character, and leadership congruence. So what do we mean by that? Leadership congruence pays attention to how God has wired you and how to leverage that uniqueness in his wiring in the exercise of godly leadership. Because I'm going to lead differently than you will, Bill. Because I have a different temperament, I have a different leadership style. But both of us, I would want to assume, would want to be biblically informed in how we exercise it. You're probably going to be more effective with certain types of people than I will be in when you exercise your leadership. And the same may be true of me in certain different contexts, wherever God calls us to lead. So it's not that we have to adopt a stagnant, neutral set of qualities to be effective leaders. It's always bathed in your leadership personality or your personality temperament and your leadership style, which is unique to how God's wired you. So the questions you might want to ask yourself in the exercise of godly leadership when we're focused here on leadership congruence is, how does your personality impact your leadership? You may be outgoing. You may be an introvert, but where do you go to get your energy? You may lead by what you write. You may be leading by what you say. You may be leading by what you are modeling uh, somebody else to do. So what are your God-given talents you bring to leading? What purpose has God designed for you? Big question. What passion burns in your soul? I honestly believe, Bill, that when God superintended our formation in our mother's womb and he knew us before we ever were and he set the number of days we would walk on this earth, it says in Ephesians that he prepared in advance a purpose for our lives, a unique purpose. So you come into this world with that package that God wants to unwrap for you. And so when it comes to a passion in your soul, you may find over the course of time that God's called you to serve in a leadership role to a people group or to a cause or a combination of the both. But there is something that will well up in your soul that you have a hard time keeping back when you're in that particular context. There's some things that God is going to call you to say and do. What principles enlighten your leadership practice? Are they biblical principles or are they worldly principles? What is your leadership style? Are you a director? Are you a coach? Are you a partner? Are you a mentor? Are you an advisor? What is your leadership style? What values serve as a filter for your decision? We did a series here just recently, Bill, where we talked about the value of values. Mm -hmm. Because every decision we make is based on a value we hold. So hopefully these introductory remarks uh, will provide a good beginning as we 
kind of launch into this series entitled Leadership Beef Jerky, Principles and Practices You Can Chew On. So what I'd like to do is we'll be discussing some topics that will help you as listeners become a leader after God's heart. We'll address principles and practices that have proven to work in terms of of three areas. How to think as a leader, which deals with our head. How to be a godly leader, which deals with our heart. How to develop good leadership practices, which have to deal with our hands. So I'm hoping you as an audience will join us for this series and in the weeks ahead. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I just want to let all the listeners know that I hope you've heard this message. I hope this message has landed with you today, that you are, in fact, a leader. Yeah, absolutely. You can't is, avoid it. You Not only can you not avoid it, but if you're homeschooling right now, you are leading absolutely. in a big way. If you, know, you are a part of a committee and you rise to a level of leadership, you are a leader. You're driving a bus for children. You are a leader. You're leading. Yeah, yeah. So... This is going to be a wonderful series. I look forward to it. Um, we're going to deal with the head, the heart, and the hand. This is going to be wonderful. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. Go to heartofawarrior.org. Heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg. And we'll see him again in a week. And uh, we'll take a break. And we come back. Uh, we've got hour two ahead, which is going to be uh, great. We're going to have a full discussion with uh, Rick Matson and David Clark. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.